Welcome to the Dr. Connect podcast, the home for open conversations, where top experts share their experiences and empower you with transformative education around cancer, health, wellness, and medical technology. If you're looking for better health, global partnership, and want to make a social impact, you've come to the right place. From sacrifice to celebration and the answers on how to turn your life around, please welcome your host, medical oncologist, Dr. Ludmilla Schaefer. Welcome. Welcome to the Dr. Connect, a home for open conversation around cancer, health, wellness, and medical technology. I'm your host, Dr. Ludmilla Schaefer, medical oncologist. We are so thrilled to have you with us today because our special guest is Dr. Don Dizon. He's a well-known physician, medical oncologist, breast cancer and pelvic cancer specialist. And after that, we will take questions from the audience. Today, we do questions in cancers. So please submit your questions on the website, thedoctorconnect.org, and we will be right back. Dr. Dizon, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Today, we'll discuss some questions in cancers. Before we start our conversation and speak about some facts and myth, I want to tell that the breast cancer is really one of the most common cancers, except skin cancer. And in women, it's about one in eight could get breast cancer. And in men, one in thousand. Mm -hmm. Now, before we dive in and speak more about it and answer all your questions, I would like for you to tell us a little bit of your backstory. Sure. I'm happy to do that. I was actually born in the South Pacific on the island of Guam, which is a U.S. territory. And I left home in 1987 and have been in the continental United States ever since, actually on the East Coast, where I went to medical school and residency, and I actually trained in cancer medicine at Sloan Kettering. I decided, you know, to do academic medicine, so I never went back home to practice, but I made my way across New England and worked at some of the best institutions, and now I find myself in Providence, Rhode Island at the Lifespan Cancer Institute, where I'm a professor of medicine there. I am married and I have three beautiful kids, two of which are girls. And so the topic is very important to me. Yeah, thank you very much. And what actually made you to be interested in breast cancer and pelvic cancer? And also, can you mm -hmm. tell a little bit us what exactly pelvic cancers for the audience? Sure. I think, Dr. Schaefer, you probably get that question a lot as well. Why did you do oncology? And, you know, when I think back to my training as a medical student, even, the people who drew me in the most into their lives and into understanding their diseases were the people who were dealing with cancer. Not only did I feel like they were the most remarkable people, but I found the disease processes really intriguing. And, you know, going back 20 years, uh, the prognosis was very different to what it is today. And I wanted to be a part of bringing better things to people with cancer. And that's why I went into the field. And I went into uh, cancers in women, mostly. And when I refer to pelvic cancers, it's really cancers of the ovary, the uterus, the cervix. But I also treat sarcomas right now as part of the Lifespan Cancer Institute, 
all along I've treated predominantly women and the cancers that are more common in women, and that does include breast cancer. But again, it was really a fascinating disease process and really the most remarkable people who have stuck with me. I, I think I can actually recall people I treated in my earliest days as an oncologist. This is very close to my heart because I actually also had a lump in my breast. And oh, mm. when it starts, when we actually get one diagnosis, then it basically becoming like a snowball. You know, yeah. one, you get mammogram, then you get diagnosis, then you get, you know, things. And I don't have a cancer, but basically you have to go through the procedure mammogram and then more screening and see surgeon and then medical oncologist. And it feels like blood work. And by the end of day, week, you actually becomes pretty much part of your life. And yeah. we are trying to figure it out how we can actually help, how we can mm -hmm. make when someone hear word cancer, that it actually does not consume your entire life and mm -hmm. also manage a little bit better. So mm -hmm. can you tell mm -hmm. us where we are standing, you know, with mammograms and all this scan? Mm -hmm. What are the recommendations now? Well, you know, I think the first thing to know um, is that mammograms are really quite important for women um, as part of the way to reduce your risk of breast cancer. And mammograms really can help us find disease at its earliest point where it's either pre-invasive, a term that's called in situ disease, but also hopefully at a point where the disease is localized and contained within the breast and we can be surgically excised. Now, mammograms are quite important and the recommendations are constantly being reevaluated. But for right now, for the postmenopausal woman, getting a mammogram every other year seems to be appropriate, although I will be perfectly honest, I still have women whether it's due to a strong family history or prior breast disease are getting mammograms more frequently. I think the take home message on frequency of mammography and workup is individualized and really requires a conversation between you and your doctor. Because just like you just pointed out, Dr. Schaefer, finding something abnormal in the breast starts a process to make sure we, if it's cancer, we find it and diagnose it. And if it's not cancer, we get to that negative point, but it's a process and it can be very anxiety provoking and it can be very drawn out. And women and men, like you just pointed out, oftentimes describe being just taken off of their feet and rushed down this tunnel and they just want the tunnel to end and they want to see the sunlight again. If you don't have cancer, that sunlight, that end of the tunnel comes quicker but if you have cancer, that tunnel can extend. It's very important that you mention because also I have a question. For example, a lot of patients, they think that if someone, a neighbor or friend or someone that they know, they got cancer, they actually have the same cancer. Mm. And I hear many times, well, but I know that person and that that's what that person gets. Mm -hmm. So is it the breast cancer is the same disease or it's a completely different cancers? 
that's been one of their most remarkable breakthroughs as we understand cancer today. So it's pretty much relevant across cancers, but especially in breast cancer. It isn't the same, you know, the, the cancer that your best friend had or your mom or the neighbor down the street. Chances are it wasn't the same cancer that you have. I often will tell my own patients dealing with a diagnosis that their story, their journey, or their treatment course with their own breast cancer is as individual as they are because we know that you know when all of the facts come down and we look at a pathologic look under the microscope and see what kind of cancer it is it's going to be at least one of four broad categories not one behemoth that we call breast cancer you know it could be a hormone positive breast cancer meaning it was fed by estrogen it could be a triple negative breast cancer, which means it was growing no matter what the hormones were. It could be something called a HER2 breast cancer, which means it had a pathway. It had a switch that was turned on, making it grow, you know, or it could be a combination of hormone positive and HER2, just very different types of breast cancer. And we're learning even within these big groups, there can be distinctions between them as well. Thank you very much. And I want to remind all audience, please submit your questions at thedoctorconnect.org. And this is very interesting because we also have a question from the audience. It came and someone asked, why my neighbor getting immunotherapy and I'm getting chemotherapy and they don't have any side effect and I have nausea, vomiting, and I'm losing my hair. Why it's like that? Well, you know, that goes into the different kinds of breast cancers that we are treating right now. First of all, just for the folks in your audience who don't have breast cancer or are really worried about it, there are no assumptions about how we're going to treat breast cancer. One person who has a hormone-positive breast cancer, and we look at the content of the genes within that cancer, we can tell today whether that is a worrisome cancer or not. And if it's not a worrisome cancer then you won't receive chemotherapy. But for those folks who need chemicals to treat their cancer, we are learning that there are specific forms of it that we can give immunotherapy to. We can rev up someone's immune system, literally take the blinds off of someone's immune system so that immune cells can find and target and kill breast cancers within them. That strategy doesn't work for everybody. And for those people who have a high-risk breast cancer or are living with disease that has come back, chemotherapy still is a mainstay option. It's not what everybody requires, but it is an option to treat particularly advanced disease or disease that has returned. I'm glad you mentioned about men because we also hear that men say, oh, no, breast cancer, it's not. It's only for women. And, you know, statistics show that it's about one in thousand men can get breast cancer. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Breast cancer is definitely a cancer of the female gender. But it is important to note that it is not exclusively a diagnosis of women. Men do get breast cancer. And the unfortunate thing today is that breast cancer is stereotyped in pink and in femininity. And oftentimes men are on the very awkward point of not seeing themselves in a community with a disease that affects women predominantly. But having said that, 
men can get breast cancer. The treatments are the same. The pathways are the same. You know, if it's hormone positive, we'll approach it that way. If it isn't, we'll approach it another way, just like we will in women. But incredibly important point for men, if you're noticing a difference between your chest, if you have a little bit of breast tissue on one side and not on the other, or if you feel a lump, that could be something to worry about. Early presentation is important. Go see your doctor. And when you mentioned about high risk, it reminds to me, for example, in my field among gastrointestinal cancers, in pancreatic cancer, we say sometimes to our patients, well, pancreatic cancer carry breast cancer genes. And because now with all new molecular tests and how we find, we actually see also BRCA1 and BRCA2. Can you tell us a little bit in breast cancer, how, you know, person would know if actually at risk and should go and do genetic Mm -hmm. tests or not? How do I know if I carry breast cancer genes? So these genes that we're talking about are genes that you inherited from your mother or your father that increases the risk of cancers. And in the context of BRCA1 and BRCA2, it's not only breast cancer, it's ovarian cancers, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancers in men. So these are important, what's called genetic predisposition syndromes. Not that you get these genes, you will get cancer. If you have these genes, you're at a higher risk of getting cancer compared to people who don't have those genes. The ways we can tell who should be tested, if you were diagnosed with breast cancer, we will refer you to a genetic counselor to see if you should be tested for BRCA1 and 2. So what do they look at? They look at your family history. Do you have a mother or a sister or a daughter who developed breast cancer? Do you know anybody or is there anybody in your family who had two types of cancers, maybe a breast cancer on the left side and then a breast cancer on the right side? Is there a history of ovarian cancer in the family? Did your grandmother have it? What about a great aunt? So it's this very big exploration of one's family history. I think the important point to note though, some of us don't have a large family or some of us don't have a lot of women in our family. And some of us were adopted and don't know whether we are at increased risk. Those folks in particular, or I should say as well, should be referred for genetic counseling. Yeah, that's actually very important because sometimes, yeah, we don't really know our family. And also we think that, oh, maybe that's an immediate first degree relatives. But no, we also speaking about second and third degree relatives and mm-hmm. how important to know family history. Mm-hmm. So speak and learn about family history. Now, Yeah, Dr. Schaefer, so- I always think it's really important to remember that these BRCA genes don't pass on by the mothers only. The father's side is so important because you can inherit it from either parent. Thank you. Very, very important point. Thank you. Now, I would like also ask, we have some questions from the audience, but also, you know, there are a lot of myth in breast cancer. And we don't speak that many meat for some reason in colon cancer and pancreatic cancer, but in breast cancer, it's just everywhere. So I want to kind of like play with you a little bit and see what's the fact and what's the myth. So I have a question from the audience. 
does milk, like dairy products, does milk link to breast cancer? Facts or myth? That's going to be a myth. Sometimes it comes up with soy products, but even there, the products in the United States that contain soy have such low, 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 low volume, it doesn't increase the risk of breast cancer, even there. And so next one, being stressed out, if someone really stressed out, does it increase Mm -hmm. risk of breast cancer? Fact or myth? So that is also a myth. Stress in and of itself doesn't increase your risk of breast cancer. Where I worry about it is in the person who's diagnosed with breast cancer and how they're going to tolerate therapy. Excellent. Now, another one. There is no evidence that sugar in the diet causes breast cancer. Fact that one, or that one is true. There is no evidence that sugar in your diet. And in fact, I like to tell our, our um, the people we treat, right? Cancers can create their own sugar stores. They can create their own food. So essentially, it doesn't matter what's in your diet as far as sugar intake goes. If cancer is going to feed, they're going to feed and they can create their own sugar. But it's just important because I want to say eat. I'm not going to say eat all the cake you want. (laughs) I think you still need to follow a heart healthy diet and we need to watch weight and all of that's still important for sure. I'm glad you mentioned about healthy diet. So for breast cancer, what is the healthy diet? You know, right now there's so mm-hmm. many new trends on diet. Mm-hmm. You go out there, we have all kinds of complementary medicine. We have all kinds mm-hmm. of alternative. We have all kinds of ketone diet, this diet, that diet. And, you know, I want to just tell mm-hmm. that it's true. You know, we also need sugar for our heart and for our brain. So if we deprive <laughs> our heart and our brain, so how are we actually going to function? But right now there are so many different diets. Mm-hmm. What's the healthy diet with breast cancer or to prevent breast cancer? You know, that's an important question. What we know are things that can be modified, not to prevent, because it's very difficult to prevent one person's risk of breast cancer. But what we can do is reduce the risk that you might get breast cancer. So that's where things like reductions in alcohol intake, because we know that people who drink a lot over two glasses of alcohol a day. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, what do you mean by a lot of alcohol? Like if (laughs) if someone drinks, you know, one glass of wine per month, is that considered a risk? (laughs) That is not considered a risk. And I always look to our European colleagues who drink one glass of wine with dinner and have great heart outcomes, right? So again, it's hard to look at, you know, what can I do best for my cancer? Because we want to look at how do we stay healthy? So you know, limited alcohol intake, high fruits and vegetables is a good idea. A low red meat is also a good idea. But a bunch of these things are really about increasing overall health. And that's where exercise also comes in. You know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle not only will reduce your risk of breast cancer, but will also reduce your risk of having a chronic illness like heart disease, like diabetes. Interesting. And exercise right now, it's a whole theme. You know, every time you turn any TV channel, you turn around, everyone advice on, you know, exercise, exercise. So how much actually 
we should mm -hmm. exercise, sort of stay healthy. And another, you know, guidelines, we have, you know, specific sternness exercise, but for breast cancer, what yeah. would be exactly, what should I do to prevent breast cancer? You know, we're not talking about lifting weights, for example. We're not talking about overly stressful things. What we're talking about with exercise is maintaining, again, healthy lifestyle. Brisk walking is a really important thing to do. 20 to 30 minutes, five times a week should be sufficient to reduce one's risk of breast cancer. I have seen, and this is, the, I guess, the caution I would answer this with. I have seen people who run marathons. I've seen Olympic athletes, people at the prime of their life who are healthy as you can possibly get, still get breast cancer. So again, what we're talking about is not prevention for any one of us, but it's about risk reducing to as low as it can go. You know, it is impossible, short of removing both of your breasts, which no one would recommend unless you have this genetic predisposition to breast cancer. But short of doing that, it's impossible to prevent breast cancer. What we can't do though, is take something into control and that's where reducing our risks come in. Yep. For everyone, what would be three main tips or three strategies that we can do to prevent breast mm -hmm. cancer today? Mm -hmm. So I think my three tips for our folks here is one, seeing your doc getting regular imaging. Okay. That's really important. And again, it's about early detection, you know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle for sure. Watching your diet, exercising regularly or briskly walking regularly, really important. And then talking to your family, learning your family history, seeing if there's a history of that cancer, bringing that to your doctor having that conversation about whether or not you should undergo genetic counseling or even testing. Thank you. And for breast cancer, speaking all of this, so is it right now breast cancer actually increasing, decreasing? Mm -hmm. How are we doing overall in the nation? That's a complicated question. You know, it looks like the rates, they're not dropping. They're sort of staying the same. But, you know, so one of the big things that dropping? I mean, we're doing so many new tests. We're doing so many new <laughs> studies. We are so aware. And especially mm -hmm. with the digital technology, why is that? It's a double-edged sword because as we're picking up cancers early, we're probably picking up many of them that would not have done anything had they been left alone. It's this whole notion of overdiagnosis and finding cancers that were never meant to kill you. The problem today is that we have no idea of how to know if cancer X is a good cancer that's gonna behave itself and not travel to your bones or your liver or your lungs or not. So we are really you know, treating all of these lesions we're finding in the breast. So I think that's part of the reason. When you find pre-invasive breast cancer, it still counts towards the stats of a breast mm. cancer diagnosis. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. So I would like to come back where we started and speak about, you know, pelvic cancers. That's something that, mm -hmm. you know, community not really paying attention and sometimes even shy to speak about. Yeah. You know, when someone, let's say, you know, has something with the arm or leg, you know, we go around, we talk about it. But when kind of comes to a pelvic 
type of disease, infection, cancer, you know, it's a very sensitive topic. Can you educate us a little bit more about it? Sure, sure. So, you know, I think one of the things I oftentimes find our patients living with is guilt, right? Why didn't they know this was inside of them? It's a big source of distress for people who are diagnosed with, say, ovarian cancer or uterine cancer or even cervical cancer. But honestly, you know, cervical cancer, much like breast cancer, you know, it can be found very early. That's why we have pap smears. And hopefully we can, you know, I just said we can't ever prevent. We can actually prevent cervical cancer with a vaccine, the HPV vaccine. But for people with ovarian cancer, oftentimes they're going to present advanced disease when the disease has already left the ovary. That is just a fact. And it's no one's fault that that happened. I think what's really important is for people to understand their bodies and what their bodies might be telling them. You know, a woman who's been thin on her all of her life, whose pants are all of a sudden not fitting or that they're tight or she has this discomfort around her waist or she's getting bloated and it's persistent, you know, lasting a month, going on two months. That is something that should be a red flag. And correct, and I think you're right, Dr. Schaefer, it's so difficult for women and their caregivers to talk about these organs because they're so private. And quite frankly, they're internal organs. They're not external organs. They're not there for everyone to see. They're not even there for a woman to look at to know that something is wrong. And so part of it is when you get diagnosed with cancer, it is never your fault, never. And even if it's late, it is still not your fault. When they meet with us, it's always about, this is time zero. Let's move forward rather than finding the reason why this happened to you. A very good friend of mine always said, you know, the answer to the question, why did I get cancer? Isn't to try to find or make up a reason. The answer is, why not? Why not you? Mm-hmm. You know, that is as honest as any of us can really get. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. And connect with Dr. Dizan. And we really would like to see how we can have you back. And unfortunately, you know, the time closing close to the hour. And I would like to tell all audience, please submit your questions at the doctorconnect.org and subscribe our YouTube channel, the Doctor Connect TV. And thank you so much for being with us on the show. Join and subscribe our channel. And we are so excited to have you on this journey with us. And thank you for watching and listening. And we will be back with you soon. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Connect podcast. If you like what you heard, please take a moment to leave us a rating and let us know what you think. Do you have a question, an idea for a topic, or would you like to share your experiences or expertise? Reach out to Dr. Ludmilla Schaefer at thedrconnect.org. And don't forget to follow Dr. Schaefer on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Check out the show notes for all the links. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to connecting with you soon.